thanks for joining us. Um, thanks for Pedro, our, our magnificent booker, for once again uh, making it all happen. Without it, only half these shows would ever come off. Um, but we're here to talk about Chia, which is interesting. I think what, what spreads this conversation, um, in addition to the, the coolness of Chia itself, is the fact that you launched a recent project. And maybe we should just... I don't know, but do you think it's worth explaining the sort of Chia concept more broadly or getting right into the... Um, into the NFT thing that kind of spurred this conversation, Jim? Well, I think it's probably worth giving people a little background on Chia just because it's so new, right? Yeah, the, and, like, uh, and like I said, it's, you know, you should assume relative tech savviness, but not necessarily 100% crypto savviness. Or maybe, yeah, I'm just, or maybe I'm just projecting my own ignorance. But in any case, <laughs> let's, let's start with what Chia is and go from there. Yeah, so Chia is uh, Bram Cohen, who invented BitTorrent, uh, coming back from uh, being what I'd call blockchain skeptical to figuring out there was a there here. And then really doing what Bram does well, which is kind of core R&D to address some of the real problems that some of the first generation blockchains really have. And so, you know, there's kind of two big things. Uh, big thing number one is that even Satoshi didn't want proof of work to use as much electricity. Uh, in the white paper, he said uh, one CPU, one vote might work. And, you know, the idea was unused CPU cycles of which there's a lot, right? Um, and the other issue is, is we've seen that smart contracting is so in demand that, in fact, people are kind of willing to suffer a poor smart contracting environment to, you know, potentially build the kinds of really interesting, like, self-enforcing assets and, you know, wholly new concepts that could only rely on a fully decentralized blockchain, right? So what Chia is, is a new consensus algorithm that has the same or better security than proof of work but uses like one six hundredth the power. And what it does is it uses unused disk space instead of compute to store kind of the bingo cards that decide whether or not you win the next block. And paired with that is a, a programming language we call Chia Lisp. And Chia Lisp is if you were going to take the uh, important things from Bitcoin from a security perspective, what sort of smart contracting programming environment would you create? And so with these two things, um, we launched a little over a year ago uh, we became the largest uh, blockchain by node count ever at about 400,000 peak. We're about somewhere between 175,000 and 200,000 actual validators all around the world. Uh, to put that in perspective, Bitcoin has about 210,000 validators at peak. Currently, it's about 50,000 validators. So, I do want to get into the Chia list thing. Um, but just to, to get back to the fundamentals for one second, you know, and just to understand what the shift is from proof of work to proof of space and time, Right. Like in, if you sort of ch try to channel Satoshi in the original Bitcoin paper, it seemed that what he was trying to do there was couple the value of this new, you know, quote unquote, magic Internet money to kind of the price of computation itself. Right. In other words, it was your ability to actually wrangle like CPU time or, you know, graphic ASICs cards, whatever, the, you know, computation at scale, your ability to channel that was to the extent that, you know, Bitcoin had a certain value and what you'd be rewarded for mining it. And in some sense, Chia kind of flips it on its head. And in many ways, like, you know, when you take like an operating systems course in undergrad and it's always about either memory or CPU time, or when you go to like the performance thing on your Mac and it's like, okay, memory, CPU, you're kind of flipping in and saying, no, we're not worrying about the CPU. We're worrying about the actual memory and actually, yeah. and actually storing lots of things and then proving that you've actually kept this around for a very long time. And how, and how you do that is kind of complicated and probably not ideal for an audio format, but, um, but it's interesting and, and, you know, it really changes it. I, you know, I seem to recall, and not to start off on a, on a negative foot here, but it, you know, it, you, you use anything as the base for any financial system and it warps kind of the economics of that thing, assuming it gets big enough, right? So for a while there, wasn't like the price of like SSD disks kind of taking off because of Chia's price and then get into like what, it, what, what sure, happens sure. with it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the past and let's talk about the future, right? Uh, okay. You know, you're absolutely right. Before, before we go there, let's go back to the beginning where you were saying, you know, Satoshi was looking for something to, you know, tie value to. It was really what's called uh, attack the Sybil problem. It was like, how do you make somebody be only one dog on the internet, right? And that was where proof of work came from was to do this concept of, hey, look, you know, let's have this resource that we're using that makes it almost impossible for you to fake being three people, Right. Um, and it was compute. And you're absolutely right that what Bram did was kind of flip it on its head and say, let's use storage instead. But uh, when we launched, it was a perfect storm. It was the kind of end of the worst parts of the pandemic. A whole bunch of major uh, data center providers all decided they were buying 
big amounts of storage at the same time that we were launching one of the most popular networks ever. And so we were partially responsible for doubling the price of hard drives. Um, you know, that was a short term phenomenon because there was a tremendous amount of money to be made and nature abhors a profit vacuum. Now, over the longer term, we really like storage because there's about eight zettabytes of it in the world. And at any given moment, there's an entire zettabyte that's empty. Um, and so it's one of those really, really big markets that's really mature. And so it's kind of hard over the medium and long term to have a significant impact on it, other than potentially to drive, you know, the cost of archival storage down a little bit for everybody. Right. You know, the, the big difference between proof of work and proof of space and time to the extent we do distort the space business, it's great for Meta, Facebook, Google and the Internet Archive, too. Okay, well, I mean, while we're on the topic of, of proof of space, um, you know, Chi was an innovator there, but of course, it's not the only one with the proof of space um, underlying the protocol, right? One Filecoin comes to mind as well, which for, for those who aren't familiar, it's a similar proof of space and time thing, but instead of saving effectively the cryptographic bingo cards, as you call them, you're actually saving like somebody else's files. Um, I'm curious if, not to deviate because this show is obviously about Chia, but it, it seems like an, an obvious comparison in the proof of space work is Filecoin. So I'm curious how you think about yourselves with relation to, to Filecoin. Well, there, there are orthogonal use cases. So Filecoin is trying to create publicly available storage that's generally available to everybody. And you know, Sia is trying to do this as well. You know, the one thing that always troubles me about that model is that, you know, the things you want, want to spend that much more money from versus putting them on S3 or Dropbox or other things have a kind of bad selection bias towards things that we all don't want to see on the Internet. So, you know, it's a very different model to say, hey, we're going to publish stuff. And look, it's all kind of funny. Um, Zcash and Zuku and Bram all go back to Mojo Nation. And Mojo Nation was the startup in the early nine, early 2000s, pardon me that tried to create both a cryptocurrency and a public, you know, file service. And the cryptocurrency part's really interesting and the public file service is challenging, to put it mildly. So, you know, we're using unused space solely as a verification method to build a financial infrastructure, right? Right, I mean, it, it just occurs to me that if, if this was like more of a Wall Street type operation, there would be some actual spread between the value of, um, Filecoin and um, and Chia because you'd use one to to power the other, right? You would try to arbitrage Filecoin versus Chia versus presumably AWS in the same way that like the cost of gas. There's what's called the crack spread, which is a spread between gasoline and oil, for example, that is fairly static but varies as a function of of um, refinery capacity. And so anyhow, you would think that there would be some coupling there, but I'm guessing that it ha that hasn't happened yet, or it's not as simple as I'm it, just. It, it, it doesn't actually yeah. work that direction. So. Um, the Chia Farmer, it's very hard to beat having a hard drive that you're already going to have on in your own home because you're, you know, amortizing your power bill, you're amortizing your rental cost. You know, you can't really even farm in S3 because it's just too darn expensive. It's like, I think it's $15 a terabyte a month to have S3 and for 15 to $20 a terabyte, you can buy a hard drive and have it for four to eight years, right? So, you know, anytime you add things like Filecoin or S3 on top, you're paying a lot more money than just simply proving up to space. Right. But yeah, but again, but it just seems to me intuitively as a former Wall Street guy that somehow those values should be coupled somehow, but they don't, I assume they're not. They're just, they're not. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, look, there's, there's a natural market here, right? Like, so if you're Amazon and you finally decide, hey, let's farm the unused space, first of all, you know, your, your head of ops is in the business of trying to buy you just exactly the amount of storage that you need to sell at $15 a terabyte a month this week, right? So they're not, somebody who's likely to farm. Um, it's actually interesting. Some of the small data centers do farm because they have these big lumpy workloads where like they're focused on Hollywood and they'll render a movie for two weeks, but then the entire both GPU and storage are empty for two to three weeks while they wait for the next customer. Those guys actually farm Chia and uh, mine Ethereum on that stuff. So, you know, it, the, the reality is, is that when you're in a very competitive market, which any of these kind of validation mining farming is, you, you know, you're going to go toward the least cost uh, underlier. And like anybody who's got spare storage laying around has a pretty unfair profit advantage against somebody who's going to spend money trying to get it. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the example. I mean, I, I guess it should have been obvious, and maybe I'm just not very smart about it, that data centers would mine Chia. It's, you know, it's all about demand management, which is a term that comes from the energy space, right? Which I know it sounds like going down a rabbit hole, but sorry, pull request goes oh. down a lot of rabbit holes. But um, in the demand management world, 
Um, the problem there is that when you produce power, I mean, this is part of the reason why a lot of green energy solutions won't kind of save us, right? Because yeah. it turns out that solar and wind tend to not run exactly when you use maximal power, <laughs> right? Which is, for example, in the winter in Europe or, yep. you know, in Texas when whenever. And so, but unfortunately power, unlike say oil or disk space, I guess, can't really be stored, right? So there right. isn't like a term structure and I'm using the financial term, meaning there isn't like a forward price of oil that varies as a function of the current price plus storage costs, which to some very naive way, if like the price of oil in the future got too high, I could buy oil now and store it and then sell it forward and make a profit, yep. which actually does happen. Like the, like yeah. the commodities trading desk at Goldman actually does this, right? Totally, but, yes. But, but you, you can't do that with power because unfortunately battery storage capacity is still too low and you can't produce you know gigawatts of power now and then just like have it sit around and sell it in the future and so you have to have clever ways but a buddy of mine um sold a company in europe that did just that that basically used smart metering and you might ask and i'll get off the topic at this point Gene, no worries no, um it's all about the side stories yeah right 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 and, and then in the power case again the only real solutions a eventually it's going to be improving uh, you know, battery storage capacity. But for now, it's it's weird shit like, oh, um, a lot of power sinks are things like commercial refrigerators, right? That you yep. can use to soak up power, cool it cooler than it would naturally need to go, but then they consume power when power is cheap and not otherwise. Anyhow, there's all sorts yep. of ways to build slack into the system, even though it's really at the margins, but it's at the margins that you need. I mean, as, as a totally last side thing, um, my boss at the at Goldman, and this was the credit desk, but he had come from the commodities desk and he mentioned, I, I had no idea that Goldman actually owns all these power plants along the East Coast just because to fulfill some of the of the energy contracts, you have to have the ability to actually provide power. And so yeah. anyhow, it, it just, what you're telling me about, in some sense, the power plant in this case is actually like, the cloud storage company or, or, or the colo facility that has a bunch of spare capacity that doesn't know what to do with. And the fact yep. that they can mine Chia changes the economics of it and has them monetize a capital asset that otherwise would be sitting there idle. That's right. And so look, you know, people likely are going to buy a little more storage than they used to, but even in the power scenario, you know, right now the Holy grail to store power is to pump water uphill until we solve yeah. that problem. Power has got that problem. Right. Yeah, yeah, and for those who don't, like, what the fuck is Gene talking about? Like, this is actually a real thing. What they do is when power is cheap because, say, it's sunny, you've got a massive, you literally have pumps that just, it's like literally a physics problem from high school that just pumps water up a fucking hill. And then when it gets expensive, they let it flow down through like a small hydroelectric dam and produce power that way. And they just go back and forth and, and once again, try to balance the market that's inherently imbalanced because you can't store power unless you pump water up a hill. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, okay, well, we've geeked out on, uh, you know, the disequilibrium in markets <laughs> a lot. Um, but it's, it's, I do think it's interesting how, again, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Chia, whatever, make it such that, <clears throat> again, you can use underutilized assets. By the way, Richard, you're just sitting there. By all means, I, I, I want to let you jump in if you have something else um, to add. Um, I'm just a metaverse NFT uh, expert. <laughs> so Gene is all... So let him chat. <laughs> okay, you're really just GPT three like piped to a speaker, right? And then plugged into call. No, I'm joking. I'm joking, Richard. Um, <laughs> that'd be amazing if so. I, in fact, if I could replace myself with GPT three, I will. Um, that'd be actually that's a good idea. Actually, doing a Substack post in which it's just literally just the, yeah, it's just GPT three. Yeah. It's like it's literally just the corpus of all my previous writing, and I just right. like turn turn the crank again. I wonder how long I could, I could get away with that. Um, anyhow. <laughs> yeah like what if the subs actually go up that is that would be the most <laughs> insulting thing it's like what the fuck anyhow um so so interesting so one thing um I, so one of the interesting things about all this crypto stuff and like i said i'm not a crypto native exactly but i'm trying to make myself into one because I, I find the world fascinating for a bunch of reasons and i do want to get your your views on like quote-unquote web3 more broadly particularly in mm -hmm. that it's it's kind of in a tough spot right now but um you know, you know this business of either proof of work or proof of space is, is really interesting because, again, it lets you capitalize on an otherwise expensive asset that maybe you wouldn't. There, there is the notion of proof of useful work, right? And there the idea, I mean, it sounds a little dismissive because it implies that all the other work is useless, but the idea there is that, like, okay, like, we get it. Like, you couple the price of this token to the, you know, the cost of actually doing something in, in the digital world. Why, why shouldn't that be something valuable like, I don't know, 
protein folding calculations or this takes us back to like the SETI at home screensaver from 15 years ago or whatever. I'm curious if you have thoughts about that and how, how that will evolve. Well, look, you know, we have suspicions about who Satoshi was. And in fact, if that we were right, one of those people was massively into SETI at home. So you actually bring that up in a very relevant way. Now, the problem is, and you and you and I discussed this a little bit on Twitter, um, proof of useful work starts getting right back to the civil problem. And so the civil problem is, you know, how do you know um, who is who and how do you choose randomly somebody so that you don't accidentally choose the person you're doing a transaction with, right? And so the problem with proof of useful work is that you can choose which parts you work on and you can decide, hey, if I work on this part, I'm more likely to get another block in the future and I can actually steer how I build the blockchain in a way that's favorable to me. It's called selfish mining. Um, and so there are some really nasty, difficult challenges to keep, you know, the 51% threshold to be 51%. Because it actually turns out that Bitcoin's probably actually 49 and there's a negative way you can get us into a 42% threshold. So, you know, it, it, the proof of useful work ideas, uh, you know, from outside of cryptocurrency certainly looks appealing. But when you get into the actual issues about having a permissionless system, the permissionlessness and the ability to leave and join the system whenever make it very, very hard to, you know, ultimately do proof of, quote, useful work. And for those who maybe didn't quite follow the leap that Gene made there, a key thing to understand is in the case of regular proof of work, which, for example, effectively reversing hash functions in the case of Bitcoin, right? Like if I solve this puzzle, the solution to the next puzzle is completely uncorrelated to this one, assuming it's a proper hash function and everything is designed correctly. But in the, proof of, but in the proof of useful work scenario, depending on what the useful work is, whether it be fitting a linear regression or solving some ML problem or whatever, like I could give answers that would actually make the next thing easier to solve, right? Like in other words, right. Right, the, the problems are not actually random or quote unquote pseudo random, that they're, they're actually connected to each other, right? Because Yeah, they're correlated. Right. right they're, they're correlated and, and, and such. I could start playing games with the answers I give to make the next one easier and so on. And so it's, you know, reversing hashes seems like useless work, but it does have a certain cryptographic purity to it in that it's kind of, <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's a pure random number generator, right? Like right. You know, the odds that I'm going to find that magic little knots that turns the MD5, hat, pardon me, the SHA-256 hash into the right number is really, really small. Somebody will. <laughs> right. But it's, it's, again, if you're solving some protein folding problem or something, it would be way easier to figure that out. Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, this is obviously kind of a, I'm, I'm asking you a, a, a sort of guiding question here because I've been thinking about Web3 protocols myself and problems out in the sort of mercenary marketing attribution space that I've worked in for 10 years. And it does seem as if you, you could build protocols around some of the problems in that space. And I wonder if they're less susceptible to the sort of civil attack you're you're implying, but that's probably a conversation for another time, but it, 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 or I don't know if you want to comment on it, but um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The, the thing you get into then is then now you have uh, the ability to influence reality to influence the game, right? So, you know, the problem you get into is like, okay, if I'm out there trying to find provenance on a two day look back of all ads clicked, then it depends on if making a new block is worth more than the reward for finding that provenance, then I'm willing to spend to be the provenance so that I get to make the block. But, but that would be hard to do, right? Like you'd have to have a bot that went and clicked on a thing. And then particularly if the downstream, I, we're probably really losing the audience here a little bit because you, <laughs> yeah, know, totally. you and I have we're lots of context. Hole, yes. We're down a real rabbit hole. But I, I think it, so the idea here for those who don't understand what the fuck I'm talking about, you know, I should actually, I, I have a, a Substack post this week about precisely this problem, but it's like, if you're doing what's called attribution in the regular space and at its heart, what that means is you saw an ad or you clicked on a thing and then two days later you spent money in an app, right? And, and those things are causally connected. Like you saw an ad, you clicked on a thing, you installed the app, you got upsold, you spent money, right? There's a whole chain of causality there and threading that together is what's broadly called attribution in the tech world. That's just a slightly pedantic side note. And solving that problem is actually super difficult. As, as a key example, I often cite the example, attribution is kind of like flush toilets in a city. Like nobody thinks about it except the plumbers, except when it breaks down. And then it's like the only thing you can think about because all of civilization ends if you don't have flush toilets, right? And so it's the same thing as a final note on that, like when Apple changed the way attribution works, 
via this whole ATT thing that made it such that nobody could actually access the device ID. It was the equivalent of suddenly a bunch of toilets not flushing in New York and, you know, half the city not actually having running water. And so anyhow, it'd be interesting to actually solve that problem in a, in a fully Web3 way in the future for like a bunch of reasons. Um, but, in, but in any case, it seems like one of those areas where maybe a proof of useful work thing could happen. And it, it, would, it would be both a little bit of computation because, again, it, the problem is similar to proof of work in that it's hard to do but easy to verify. And also a little bit of what Chia does, which is proof of space, because you're storing all this data around. Anyhow, a separate conversation that you and I should maybe have, Gene, because it sounds totally like an interesting conversation. But um, okay, now that yeah. we've made it, now that we've made everyone go to sleep, um, we can <laughs> let's spice it up a little bit. Um, yeah, so you know the crypto markets generally have been. To, I think the technical term is shitting the bed, right? Recently, <laughs> I think that's the that's what the traders at Goldman would, would call this. Um, what what do you make of that? Do you have a view on that, or do you feel that Chi is a little bit more insulated? I, I know your coin hasn't suffered the, the same downturn that other coins have recently. Well, I, I would say we actually traded down with everybody else. Uh, but you know, look, the, this market is not a new market. I mean, you know, the, the the blockchain cryptocurrency space is now you know thirteen years old if you use Bitcoin, more like the eight or nine years old if you kind of think about when it started in the mainstream. And we've had this happen quite a few times. What's fascinating to me is how uh, correlated tech stocks and Bitcoin and Ethereum and ourselves are, right? You, know, you can almost predict the outcome of the cryptocurrency market directly from tech stocks. And that makes sense if you look at it as a new technology that's being adopted, right? And so from that perspective, I think it does make sense. It's, you know, if like money's tight and you don't actually have the P, the, the P part of the profit yet, then of course it's going to have a higher discount rate when you kind of look at it. But, you know, if you go look at the Bitcoin chart over the last 10 years, you know, it's a constant chart of up and to the right and then down hard, but not as far as where you started from the previous section and then up and to the right and down hard. And so, you know, for people who've been in crypto, this is a very common occurrence for people who've never been in crypto. If this is your first cycle, it's horrible. There's a, you know, the great meme of uh, first time. And uh, that one goes very much for someone who this is their first cycle in crypto. Well, but home, but it's, it's still kind of weird, right? The fact that crypto and equities are so coupled because, you know, the, the dollar and S&P aren't correlated necessarily right like to a first pass it's not obvious why crypto and equities would be until you realize that depending on the coin but for some projects the the token is effectively a pseudo equity to the point that a lot of the a lot of the rounds are actually raised as options to buy tokens or warrants on equity to buy like the 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 currency functions as a form of equity and so in that context it it makes sense but in some of the more key currencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, it seems a little bit less obvious why that would be. Well, so in Bitcoin, you know, you're not yet at the size of the gold market in the United States, right? And so you still have this adoption cycle. It's not complete. I think ultimately Bitcoin decorrelates from tech, but I just don't think we're there yet. I see. Because everyone sees it as effectively a way of owning triple Qs, but even more leveraged and less regulated. I see. Yes. (laughs) Man. Okay. Um, Man, that's... By the way, do you, do you want to go out, now that we're going out on, on a limb, do you just want to go on a limb and call if we're at the bottom of the market or the top of the market, Gene? Or is that not a projection? You, you know, look, look I'll, call, I'll call it as near the bottom, so at least I get it bouncing to the wrong direction. But I think we're towards the bottom of it. Now, the problem with that statement, though, is, is crypto is very good at trading sideways for months on end. And, you know, I think there's a lot of, well, my CFO puts it well, the average trader on Wall Street's been on the desk seven years. So, like, none of them have seen inflation. None of them have seen an interest rate above 2%. So it's a, you know, very weird new world that everybody's having to adapt to. You know, folks like you and I at least kind of remember when we were kids what inflation looked like. I remember getting 14% in my checking account. Uh, But, you know, that's not necessarily this cycle. And, like, we're starting from a different place. And, you know, it's just all sorts of new and novel stuff. It's going to take a little while for everybody to sort out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of inflation or inflated assets, right? Like the fact that we have seed rounds that are $5 million, right? It's like, I remember when there were 500K, it was like a healthy seed round. Oh, um, yeah. Look, you know, it used to be the safe round was going to be like a million bucks on the big side. And now it's literally a $5 million round adding a $20 million break. Right, right. For like a team and no product yet. And yeah. Hey, hey, PowerPoint, uh, yeah. Right, a PowerPoint, yeah. Um, fascinating. So what do you make, now that you're speculating wildly on the crypto markets, let's, let's go full Warren Buffett. And, um, you know, what do you make of like Web3 as a concept? I mean, not just the term itself, although if you want to talk about that, but, you know, the, the, thought, of, the thought of replacing Web2 with 
this weird, like almost nostalgic re return to Web One, but via this newfangled technology. What, what, what do you make of that? I think it's a real deal. I mean, I think we have this la this lasting technology pendulum that goes back even into the 70s and, you know, mainframes where you start centralized and then you decentralize until you get to a certain point where you go back to the centralization. And then you hit a certain point and you start heading in the other direction. You know, I, I see Web3 as log into the web with your crypto wallet. And once you do that, two big things unlock. You know, the, the Internet is this horrible overlay over the credit card system. And the credit card system was never designed to do what we currently ask of it to do. And in fact, in some ways, that credit card system's flaws drove the kind of web two focus on eyeballs because, you know, charging 10 cents was just not something you can do in the credit card infrastructure. Going to a world where like identity and money are available at any kind of small or large size between computers and between yourself, I think that's what Web3 is really about. And all of a sudden you have different business models that we haven't been able to try before that might work this time around. I mean, I would maybe challenge that slightly because I wonder, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that as, as anyone who's tried to integrate with a credit card, I mean, Stripe exists just as like a non-sucky version of online payments, right? Yep. I mean, it's a brilliant company, but it's, you know, margin on top line is single digit percentages and it's, that's because it's better to deal with them than Visa. But I don't know that like all the content problems of the past or the, or the reason why we have ads is simply due to the fact that like micropayments were hard, right? Or, I mean... Well, micropayments are impossible, right? It took right. Apple at scale to barely make it work, right? Right, right. It, hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, might be, it might even be a philosophical question because at this point, you know, technology and culture is like time is like path dependent, right? And so we've been through yep. the path in which payments were hard. People expect the internet to be broadly free unless they're getting quote unquote something out of it, like say Dropbox or something. Although that's changing a little bit, right? And we're going to more of a, and for media, we're going into more of a subscription world, but yep. still broadly, it's most people try to get around paywalls, even in the case of media or things that seem like mostly user generated content they would largely won't pay. Like, I don't think Twitter Blue, for example, has been a massive success. For those who don't know, it's this like basically premium version of Twitter that's like three bucks a month or something. Um, hey, look, some as somebody, both of us being fully in the you know right audience for that, the reason people never heard of it is I don't see it being very valuable to myself, and I doubt it's valuable to you either. But that's another story. Right, right. No, no. I signed up for it originally, and then I stopped it because that whole like they have like a fake edit tweet feature, which is really, right. we just delay posting it and then you can tweet it later, but then you forget to leave it on. And then like, why the fuck has my tweet not gone out? And it's like, oh, it's like a little clock is ticking for a minute. It's like ridiculous. Anyhow, um, only Twitter would ship edited tweets by like just not posting the tweet, right? And just till I get to change your mind later. Um, it's kind of like the send, like the, like unsend email button on Gmail. Like nothing actually happens. They're just sitting around waiting for five seconds for you to like realize that you just sent, yeah, hit you the know, wrong button. The, hit the wrong button. Anyhow, um, interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I want to think that you're correct that it's like micropayments, but again, I think, well, it's, I, I so it's not just micropayments, it's identity too. And it's an right. important point, right? Right now it's, you know, log in with Facebook, log in with Twitter. That's web two. Web three is log in with MetaMask, log in with your Chia wallet. And all of a sudden, you have control of your identity. You have the ability to do centralized identity. It's a, it's a game changer in that sense. And the reason it makes sense is that you can back it with micropayments. So, you know, if a service has a cost because it's going to have to store some of your data to make it work with your identity, paying for it's a lot easier. And it's much more final. And, and by the way, that's the big difference. Like, you know, even in a subscription Netflix world, if you get pissed off at Netflix, you can charge back the last three months and boom, it's gone. Yeah, I mean... So just to harp on the identity thing for, if people aren't wondering like, what, what the hell are we talking about identity? In web two, your identity, whether you're looking at it from the point of view of a marketer or even a consumer is very fractured, right? In that you use Google or Facebook or Apple login to things, but who you are and the data you have is spread along these various platforms, most of which tend to be walled or walled like gardens in which, but you know, the, the notion of a wallet actually breaks out. You are a thing independently of the platforms, right? But even there, right? Like it's, it's still kind of fragmented in that, <clears throat> you know, most crypto people have their hot wallet, their cold wallet, this wallet, that wallet. I'm not even that big of a user and I probably have half a dozen wallets here and there. Like, isn't that also gonna create its own fragmentation problem eventually? 
Well, look, right now, wallet technology is in the Stone Ages. I mean, it's harder to use Bitcoin or Ethereum than it is to use cash, and it has to be the reverse. Um, that's a technology question, right? The tech, the tech that originally rolled out didn't kind of think about, like, using the blockchain itself to do custody. And that's where we're heading to a world where you can. Once you hit that world, it looks a lot different because all of a sudden the stuff gets even easier to use than the YubiKeys. And we're just not there yet. Right. No, no. I, I sort of snark tweeted a couple of days ago that, like, Every time I go to some supposedly viral Web3 experience, the new user flow is just horrendous. Like oh, you would have been you would have been shot out of a cannon at Facebook if you had tried. I forget. I, I'm not going to name. I mean, well, I, I did actually name it in the tweet. I think I tried using Stepin, which is this like, you know, like exercise app that kind of pays you. And then you have an NFT angle with sneakers. And it was I just couldn't believe how hard it was to sign up to use this thing. It was like, yeah. I, do you, do you not? And then like, you know, other games like Axie, which again, I think has been, you know, a, a, a leader in like the full metaverse of Web3 gaming. As far as I can tell, it's impossible to sign up as an American. Like you just can't. Yeah. It's, it's impossible basically to even sign up as a, as a user. And well, it's like, man, your security's point. That's why. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, some of it is for dumb regulatory reasons, but yep. I do wonder that anyhow, I, I, I've, I've mentioned this point to other people who actually work in this space, particularly people who bridge the web two and web three worlds. And well, somebody actually replied to the, to the thread expressing the same sentiment, which is, you know, a lot of these web three people had a lot of success in crypto. They did very well. They built products for themselves, this total, you know, crypto degen person who has a bunch of wallets and understands all this. And they don't understand, quite understand the web two growth sort of, uh, you know, mentalities that drove the viral growth of Facebook and Twitter and all the rest of it. Is, do you think that's true? Well, look, there's this, there's this thing. And I mean, you know, it's unclear whether it was that people gave up because the technology wasn't ready or that they didn't want to do it. But there's not a lot of folks in Web3 really thinking about how to get this to the last, like, final 20% of the population. Like, we're at, like, the 20% level, right? So, you know, some places it's 13, some places it's 30. It varies for different historical reasons. But, like, we got to get past 50, 60% of everybody actually using this stuff. And I'm very worried, and this is one of the things that, you know, Bram and I really kind of look at Chia to do is to make this stuff easier than cash, to make it actually solve real-world problems that people care about. And that requires, you know, the sort of laser focus on user interface that has to be there. Now, some things are just always going to be a little more complicated. And look, we got to go to a world that doesn't use passwords anymore. But that's actually where Web 2 and Web 3 come together because you start talking about, you know, having one hardware device that logs you into Gmail and is your crypto wallet. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the sort of startup truism, right, is that to replace any incumbent, you can't be like 20% better. You have to be like 200% better, right? That's right. And, and again, we talk about things like identity and we nerd out on crypto and, oh, you know, coupling the value of the economy to computation. It's all, it's all this nerdy stuff that at the end of the day, your average user like doesn't care. They just want to do weird, cool shit on the Internet. And, yep. and you have to look at like what is the set of things that – Web Web three or crypto more broadly enables that Web two can't enable or won't or just you know will never do, and um, it, at, at least at the current moment that's a relatively small set of things. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the things that make a sense longer term is like if you're a rich person, you have a private client banking person, and if you write a check too big, he or she looks at it and goes, "Okay, I'm going to sell this part of your portfolio and cover the check and like send you an email." When you're middle class or poor, that doesn't work. There's no reason your phone shouldn't be doing this for you when you have all the assets available to you on chain. You know, you should like Robinhood is kind of a weird middleware to directly trading Tesla stock. Why don't you directly trade Tesla stock peer to peer on chain? Those are the kinds of things that will start getting more normal people really excited about Web3. But we're early in getting those things built and moved over both regulatorily and technologically. Yeah, no, I again, I wonder what the big for, for a moment I thought or I still think I think gaming is kind of one of the breakout use cases that and again in, in asia you know companies like axie have actually had a tremendous amount of success um and, and then of course there's all the DeFi of all the decentralized exchanges uniswap um ftx and whatnot right. but again it's hard it, but you know when a normie asks me so like what how, where do i go see web3 like what do i do it's hard to give them like a list of things they can <laughs> They yeah, totally. with Web3. Well, look, look, this is one of the positives of NFTs. It at least gives you a little sense of something you do. And, you know, look, I'm going to point at Richard and say Richard is uh, somewhat storied from the game industry. And that's why he's kind of here is that, you know, that metaverse idea of portability and, you know, these items being things that that go beyond the, the, the scope of the game you're in. That's very much what you know kind of drove him into cryptocurrency. Right, Richard? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you look at it, the gaming generation understand about digital ownership. And then when you start understanding digital ownership as something you value as much as physical ownership, this is where blockchain tech um, helps a lot because you have the concept of right to exit right now, obviously you have right to exit to the blockchain itself, but you know, you, you, you know, in theory, I'm not saying it happens today, right. But in theory, long-term, if you own a digital item in one, what I'll call metaverse world, you know, a gaming world and being able to take it to another one is what, you know, the Holy grail of a lot of people say, we're going to be far away from that, but there are some, what I'll call physical world use cases today that helps people see that already. For instance, digital art, right? I would love to be able to own a physical art piece with a digital companion NFT. I'm just using this as a, a use case and be able to keep the physical art in a more, well, let's say secure area, uh, you know, and then show off the digital version as an example, right? And that's like a good bridging of an idea of, I can show off my stuff show that I actually digitally own it. I can trade it just like a physical one. And then when, you know, people don't really care about physical art ever again, and they just all love stuff in the digital world, the metaverse, this is kind of where you kind of get to. Uh, gamers really understand this inherently, which is why I think gamers will be the first to adopt metaverse type technologies. And this is why like play to earn type games is becoming popular. I, I think play to earn games currently is shit, but you know, uh, it uh, doesn't mean that it can't actually work uh, longer term, um, you know, as an example, imagine if, you know, you can use, um, DMing, I, I, have you, I, I hope some people here are, know what, uh, Dungeons Dragons DMing is, um, uh, you know, as a person who DMs well, they actually earn, you know, cryptocurrency for, uh, bringing a good experience to a bunch of players, right? I think those type of play earn experiences are going to be much more impactful in the future than the, I'm just grinding to get a random item and because I got this random rare loot, that's how I'm, you know, earning income today. I mean, that's not, to me, the, the end point for like play to earn games. But that that's just, a, you know, a, a glimpse of where NFTs is sort of like a component of the metaverse. That's digital ownership. Then you need the digital identity. And then you also need to, uh, store state, right? And I think Chia has all three of these technologies upcoming that really makes the block, uh, Chia's blockchain very specific to helping the metaverse succeed, in my opinion. So, so l let's talk about that for a second about the NFT world, because that's part of what spurred this conversation is your product announcement um, uh, around NFTs. And in the white paper, which I, I'm sorry, I only had time to, to skim before the show, but um, you know, you, you analogize NFTs to the fine art market, right? Which I've often done myself, which is they're kind of expensive. They're showy. It's part of your identity. You put it as your PFP. There's probably a little bit of either money laundering or financial shenanigans in there, but it, which basically it's, it's analogous to the fine art market, right? It's the physical art market transported to the, to the digital realm. And so in that sense, you know, that's not a bad thing, by the way, but I think you're describing Richard different use cases there. I mean, again, it's one thing to own, a million dollar ape, which is the equivalent of owning a piece by Mark Rothko or something and putting in your living room as the wealthy have done since forever. It's another to have it be like, oh, the pair of shoes that I identify with as like a consumer object and use in this kind of like virtualized experience. Like those seem to be like slightly different, slightly different products. Oh, definitely. But you kind of have to see where the maturity of the technology and the overturn window of what people's use cases are right now. If I were to say, I'm going to go to after the gaming the gamers with blockchain tech, there's going to be huge backlash because there's this what I'll call narrative that all blockchains are evil because we are all unsustainable, which obviously we're not all created equal, but that's the paint, you know, paintbrush that we're, you know, painted with. Um, while in the art world, I think that this is the right time now. This is the perfect use case to prove out NFTs and go from there. You know, I, uh, every iteration of Chia's NFTs is about targeting to real world use cases. This is just happens to be the first one we're tackling right now. And we also want to tackle very specific, uh, well, I'll say challenges that NFTs have overpromised as an industry. And we want to kind of realize with the tech to kind of really show how it can really work before, you know, uh, going with what I'll call the really mass market, small price item NFTs like, you know, gamers expect. So 
let me ask you this question. This one question I've had about, you know, NFTs as fine art. If you look at the NFT market, like, you know, the collections with the most volume on OpenSea or, or whatever you want to take as your, as your standard for what's selling. Um, you, again, you see things like the apes or other collections that, that do very well, but those seem to be orthogonal to the fine art market that you're talking about. And is that, I guess, where do you see the market going? Do you see, you know, the sort of person who would own an ape would probably never in a million years step into an art gallery in Soho and sit there and talk to the gallery agent and engage in the old and the whole very physical real world song and dance that it is to buy a million dollar work of art. So do you think it's going to be art for a market, an art market that didn't know it existed, but framed in such a way that suddenly people will spend vast quantities of money on quote unquote art? Or do you feel that it's going to be the old legacy art world that'll move increasingly to NFTs? Because, you know, for those who aren't familiar with the art world, you know, auction houses like Sotheby's and, and whatnot, part of the value add is actually cataloging, in some sense, putting quote unquote on chain. The equivalent of on chain in the art world is it's part of some gallery index and it's a recognized work from the artist, which is often in, in doubt, which is why you have art fraud and all the rest of it. But so how do you see it developing? Do you see it, the art world growing into NFTs or the NFT market finally being an art market for nerds that wouldn't spend money on, on contemporary art otherwise? I see both angles happening. We're going after more the contemporary art world first and going in that direction because I think that is an interesting challenge that we can actually solve better than a lot of existing blockchains today. You know, a lot of artists that I've talked to, and I'm not saying I know all of them, but uh, I, uh, I talked to enough that a lot of them are concerned with the sustainable issues of blockchain and Chia really solves that problem really well. The other part is just the whole idea of how to get onto blockchain is really, really hard for them. So we're trying to make that easier as well for them. Um, that's not our main goal, but our main goal is to help get artists to recognize blockchain has a very good way of what I call creating digital prints and opening up the funnel for new art lovers to appreciate their artwork. And then, you know, 10, 20 years from now, those digital owners may be the ones who become the billionaire who wants to own that million dollar art piece by that artist, the physical art piece. Like that's what we see as how we're tackling it right now. So, okay. So in terms of the launch of this product, are you working with partners in the conventional art world to get their physical art into minted as Chia NFTs or what's your, what's your quote unquote go to market there? Uh, yes. Uh, don't think we alluded to exactly how we're doing that, but yes, we're partnering with uh, some existing digital artists who uh, are interested in minting their first NFTs onto the Chia blockchain. Uh, and we have to kind of wait in the future for that kind of announcement. I'll say, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Just so, you know, you have context, uh, but not everybody on the call does, you know, our NFT zero was really a kind of equivalent functionality set to Ethereum. And we specifically said here shortly that our NFT one standard will be coming out. And you can imagine that along with that is when we start talking about those additional partners, but you know, we already have a pretty vibrant NFT ecosystem that's purely digital uh, already on chain because of our asset tokens and other things. So it's kind of a, a wild thing. The one thing I'd add is like, you know, anywhere where you can create real title in a kind of cross-border way ends up getting interesting. Um, you know, we haven't talked about music and FTs, but, you know, Bram, BitTorrent, me, eMusic. Like, we think there's some interesting things you can do where instead of just buying a song NFT, which is what people kind of been talking about, imagine if you actually got the rights to sync that to your space or your call-in or your YouTube channel. I think those kinds of, you know, automated title concepts are actually quite interesting longer term and can get, you know, open up a lot of markets that are now really hard and certainly hard to make high scale. Yeah, I mean, that's one of my questions. Why, <clears throat> why haven't NFTs taken off in every other realm of intellectual property, right? Like from books <clears throat> to music, you would think, I mean, obviously there's massive incumbents to displace with enormous business models. Like why do we still have book publishers, right? But I can tell you why, because having published a book through a conventional publisher, they, they get a lot of things right about the model, right? Like everyone yep. says, oh, it's great to self-publish on Amazon. It's like, well, not really. Yeah, not you, really, right. You can still, assuming you have an agent and you have a, an attractive book proposal, it's still actually a lot smarter to de-risk by having a publisher give you an advance and go that way than just throwing it on Amazon, which is something that I think most techies don't realize. Like a lot of the legacy business models still have a lot of juice left in them. I mean, it's not, <laughs> authors aren't opting to go with them because they're like necessarily irrational or Luddites. It's just, it's the, like in retrospect, <clears throat> if I had a second book coming out, I would still push it to a, uh, to a conventional publisher probably. I at least do that yeah, first. I mean, 
Yeah. Look, there's two, there's two things there. Like, you know, one of those things is that the people who currently have those gateways are absolutely interested in it. So they just move slower than, you know, frankly, cryptocurrency time. Right. You know, they they both have the problem of the current technology makes a bunch of promises it doesn't deliver on. Like, you know, the issue is, is you can't use that much power and still be seen as a good corporate citizen. Right. But to your point, you know, and I certainly saw this in music. What ends up happening for a lot of these middlemen is that they do have some value. What happens with these big disintermediations is that you strip off the things that were just rent seeking on and kind of bring them back more to the core of what they do ultimately. So, you know, big publishing house has certain core things it was always good at. You know, the big music distributors now do certain things really well and that's added value and they're going to be able to continue to add that value. And so they're the ones who are going to be the gatekeeper of deciding, okay, where would we publish an NFT, right? Uh, got it. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, of course, is you have to create <clears throat> the two-sided market in terms of the seller and buyer of the intellectual good, right? And as someone who's tried to create two-sided markets in the, in the past, it's always the chicken egg, egg problem of, you know, no supply, no demand and vice versa. And so you'd have to like, I, you know, anyhow, you probably don't want to leak too much about how you're going to go about, uh, go about this, but you'd have to rally the demand first to get the supply or vice versa. It would, and probably what I'm guessing you're going to do is you're going to try to basically bootstrap the supply and then hope the demand shows up. But in any case, we can talk about it or not, depending on if you want to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, anytime you're building a two-sided market, you do a little bit of both, right? Mm-hmm. The, the interesting thing is, is that especially in NFTs, I think what we're hinting at pretty directly is there's a large number of media companies, artists, other intellectual property rights holders that think this is interesting and want to play. When they look at the state of the art, it's not even really clear that an OpenSea NFT is actually a decentralized thing. It's kind of an object in OpenSea. And so you start digging into it and it's like, okay, but Ethereum hasn't moved to proof of stake. So it still uses like 300 times more power than we do. There just hasn't been an alternative if you actually cared about the environmental impact. And most like gaming companies, tech companies, tech media companies really do. And so it's a brand new thing that the supply would have a platform that would be able to deliver on those promises and be, uh, you know, not objected to for burning up the world, right? So I, I think those things mean that there's this pent up supply, certainly. And I think supply helps bring that demand. I mean, you mentioned the issue of centralized versus non-centralized. I mean, one of the early critiques, I forget his name, the guy who wrote that like anti-Bitcoin book that, you know, his phrase still kind of stuck with me, which is that the problem with crypto is that it decentralizes as an article of faith and then re-centralizes by necessity later, often poorly, right? And I, I think there's something to that critique, actually. Well, right? I, I think the critique could be put better in that you have to build decentralization first. And a lot of people have decided they were going to the appearance of decentralization and they'd get around to decentralizing later. That never happens. So, you know, it, it's one of the reasons we kind of front and center the fact that we have more validators than any blockchain ever. You got to start with the design to be truly decentralized so that you don't have easy or immediate centralization effects come right back. Now, look, it would not surprise us if one of the uh, NFT galleries on our blockchain ends up being the dominant NFT gallery. But what's not going to be the case is that it's not a situation where you can't have the right to exit. You can't bring it to another one. You know, those things are really good from a market perspective because you want people to have the ability to on their own because they own it, leave this gallery and go to another one. Right. Right. But to, to, to take kind of the bear case here for a second, right, the incentive scheme is working across purposes, right? Somebody building on that platform doesn't want to be decentralized. On, on the contrary, to be a little Tealian about it, they want to have a monopoly as much as possible <laughs> to charge monopoly margins. And the architecture of Web3 works actively against that. Yeah. Well, and that's the point. I mean, the idea is, is that you're actually making it so that people have real choice and don't get pulled into that monopoly. And you're going to have to add value beyond being a monopoly to be the dominant gallery, for example. Right, right. Um, Yeah, interesting. I mean, we'll see how that plays out. I mean, I think it does require a a level of quasi-religious faith in the virtue of trustlessness and decentralization as like a social good to act in the same way that we like, or well, used to anyhow, but believe in things like the First Amendment, like and like damn the consequences, no matter what, this is the standard, we take what comes, this is a religious principle, almost the same attitude would have to function when it comes to decentralization. It's like, well, I don't care how much money you're failing to make, you, you just have to remain decentralized. Otherwise, you're, you're cast out from the Web3 religion. 
Um, well, so, you know, look, everybody bemoans the current state of the First Amendment, but I see it's continuing to work. And what I mean by that is, you know, all the crazy social media laws that have been passed by states immediately get overturned. You know, on the 50-year view, it works fine. On the current view, look, the problem partially is that, like, Ethereum isn't decentralized in any way. Like Ethereum, we have more validating nodes in Ukraine after the war than Ethereum has validators. Uh, you know, MetaMask is this massive central thing that kind of runs on Amazon Web Services. The, the effort to keep that capability decentralized just wasn't put in up front. It was, let's go create these things. And then it's kind of like, okay, why don't you just use a database? Because it would work faster, work better, and just work. And I see a lot of that mistake continuing to happen. That's what I say when you design decentralization in in the first place and you try to make it as easy as possible to do it the decentralized way then you have the benefits of the right to exit real title you can't get taken rent against you know these are all the things that frankly web 2 is really really good at that i think there's a lot of people who would like an alternative to yeah i mean it's interesting <laughs> again just to be the skeptic the keep the skeptic hat on for a little bit longer it's remarkable the number of web web 3 companies whose only like utility is making web web three seem like web two. Right. And so like a company like Dune, which I use myself and I think it's very useful to be clear, but it basically turns the blockchain into a Postgres table. <laughs> That's what it does. Yep. So you can run like a simple SQL query and just say like, all right, yeah, blockchain, crypto, this and that, like fucker, just tell me how many Ethereum wallets had a transaction in the last week. What would literally be like a one-line SQL query that is actually hard to run in the blockchain space and you need an entire company to enable. It's just interesting that that, that choice, again, is, is kind of a costly one when it comes to a lot of sort of practical concerns. Yeah, it is. And, but the thing is, like, you know, here's the benefit of it. Recently, one of the DEXs had to take down a specific trading pair from their website and the UI. But if you know how to talk to the blockchain, you can continue to use it, right? And, you know, in an era where people are losing their credit card accounts for wrong think, it's an important point that you actually are truly permissionless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, but, but it is true that like one of the assumptions baked into it, I mean, the, the term trustless has a technical connotation, but it also has kind of a, a moral and cultural one in my mind, right? It's like, yeah, you, well, it, yeah. And that's why I use the word permissionlessness, right? It's not necessarily trust. <laughs> Or, or permissionless, right? Which again, seen a certain way, it's a positive. It's like, oh, anybody can contribute. And then, of course, seen from another perspective, it's like, it sounds anarchic. But, it, you know, it, and again, I don't necessarily mean it's in a wrong thing, but it does seem like the ultimate, you know how like in all these, like all the sci-fi literature of like the world ending and somehow the guys who make the computers work, like end up running the world, right? Like somehow like the network right. system. Yep. I, I think, I think Asimov has a, or I forget, has a short story about it. Like the world ends and literally like the Unix sysadmins are the ones who run the world, right? It kind of seems right. like it's almost that nerd fantasy of like, yeah, if, if, if all of our social technology fall apart, fell apart, how would you architect an internet around that? And so it seems like a lot of Web3 is an attempt to do that for better or worse. Well, what's nice though, is it runs on without needing the developer. Like it requires somebody to run a validator and that's about it. And that's what's beautiful about it. Right. We're going to have a nuclear apocalypse and the nodes will still be running. The aliens will show up and they're going to take all our, our Bitcoin gene. That's what's going to happen at the end yep, of the day. That's, that's exactly <laughs> right. Man. Or, or the last human alive is just like, has literally all the, you know, the trillions of Bitcoin at that point. Um, yeah. Oh, that's who Satoshi <laughs> That's ex ex exactly. That was like the massively long con <laughs> of the whole thing. Um, okay, so you know, I we do take we do occasionally do Q and A for these, particularly if the topic is like this kind of you know one of public interest. I do see a Logan waiting to to ask questions, so I'm gonna if you don't mind, I'll have him ask some questions. And if um, anybody else wants to come up and ask uh, the Chia team some questions, is that okay, Gene and Richard? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Cool. Let's see if Logan is still there. He's been waiting very patiently. Logan, you are on the air. In my experience, someone who's been on the on the waiting queue since literally the show started typically is either dead or passed out or doing something else by the end of the show. Um, and so I think Logan may no longer be in the picture. Um, but if anyone else has any other questions they want to ask, anything from, um, you know, demand management in the energy markets to, uh, <laughs> to, to proof of space and, uh, and Chia and NFTs replacing the art market. Uh, by all means, come up. Oh, oh, here we go. Hold on. We have Henry. Let me make him next caller. Henry, you are online. Henry, you have to, you're muted. 
the phrase of 2020, you're muted. <laughs> or I'm not a cat. That's your choice. Hello. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, I finally figured it out. Uh, I have nothing really to say um, other than I appreciate everyone here in this chat. <laughs> okay. Well, well, thank you. Well, thank, well, you, thank, much. thank you, Henry. Like I said, it's um, the speakers have been great, but it's really Pedro who's in the crowd, who's like the booker who makes this happen because I'm so terrible with calendars. Totally. It wouldn't happen otherwise. Um, yeah, our calendars would not have matched. Thanks, Pedro. Yeah, I know. It's like like we, we, we literally need – like Pedro is wonderful, but we need some machine that takes like a bunch of calendars together and like just recombines the genomes into like a new time. Somehow there's nothing to, to quite automate that. Um, uh, any anybody else have any other questions? I'm surprised that usually I blab so much that I usually take us way over time. I'm surprised that we're actually on time. Um, uh, let's see. I got through. I think all my questions. Well, you know, one last question. If we're really nerding out, sure. I noticed sure. um, the language that you chose for Chia is not like the leading current languages are languages like Solidity and Rust and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and I'm not much of a language nerd in that. Like I, you know, I don't tend to have strong opinions on which language for this or that, but it is kind of a curious choice lisp <laughs> as the language. It's almost as if like Paul Graham is secretly a co-founder and somehow <laughs> he, t he talked to you into using lisp. What drove the, what drove the decision to use lisp? It's very much about how the Bitcoin UTXO and our coin model works. Um, lisp is very, very good at being both interpreted itself. So, you know, you kind of don't trust it, right? Uh, Cause you think about it, we're running it on 200,000 computers every 60 seconds. And the other item is, is it has no side effects. And you have to kind of build this new kind of Turing complete programming environment because, you know, Solidity, uh, Ethereum's programming language made the anybody can code, but no one can secure trade-off. And we've made the, it's a lot harder to code, but everyone can secure it trade-off because we felt like to get to real world use cases that moved billions of dollars or $10 million pieces of art, for example, you had to have a language that inspired trust in what was going to happen and that you knew exactly what was going to happen. Interesting. And for those who aren't familiar, I mean, my only real exposure to it, I guess, is in the form of Scheme, which is the language that like the wizard book, which is a textbook that people commonly use to learn computer programming, at least in traditional, like that's been my only exposure to it. That and PG's essays on it, rapturous essays about how it's the perfect programming language. But I have to admit, I've never, I've never used it. Um, I, I have read some... Go ahead. Sorry. I was just saying, it just turns out that it's exactly right for what you're looking for when you're looking for a extremely safe and extremely confidence inspiring blockchain smart contracting language. You know, it's funny. <laughs> you mentioned you kind of ding on Solidity by saying it's it's insecure. And again, I'm not enough of a language wonk to even have a huge opinion on that. But I, I have been teaching my you can definitely teach yourself Solidity by all the security problems that come up in smart contracts yeah. written in Solidity. That's right. And it's like every time I see one of these threads go viral, like you know, some dude with an avatar and a dot ETH name in their Twitter thing will do like the postmortem on some massive fuck up in the Ethereum landscape. Yeah. And it's like, man, Jesus Christ. I forget the last one was, um, what was that collection that they, they incremented an, an integer variable incorrectly or something? And well, it, you know, look, like, oh, that was the Q morning. world. Yeah. Yeah. Donson's yeah. thing. Look, rep.news is a site you never want to show up on. I'll just say it that way. Oh, right. No, that, that's, that's, no, but that's, that's like the best, look, <laughs> so literally learning site ever. Cause literally everything, yeah. for those who don't know, I think it's wrecked with R E K T. R E K T. Yes. Right. Um, and it's basically just like this, like this laundry list of just spectacular crypto fuck ups. Um, I think the biggest one was probably the Axie hack to like to the tune of $650 million, I think. Yep. Um, that was, well, that was, that was North Korea loading up on Ethereum. Right. So for those who aren't familiar with the crypto world, this sounds like a sort of thing that you would write into a James Bond movie that nobody would believe. But North Korea actually is behind a lot of these crypto hacks to fund their nuclear and submarine programs, which is just mind-boggling when you think about it. Uh, like, yeah, look, you know, well, yeah. cryptocurrency is, a, is ultimately a fight between nation states. And that's why decentralization matters, right? You put on decentralization theater... The CIA can mess with it. The Brits can mess with it. The Australians can mess with it. China can mess with it. You put together a truly decentralized secure network, and it's really, really hard and almost not worth playing, and you therefore push the security and the games up to, like, applications instead of the actual blockchain. Yeah, although the fact that, that the, you know, that the, that, the, that the heart of the thing isn't actually owned by anybody is... Um... 
one of the reasons why, of course, the powers that be will inevitably go after it, right, to some degree. Or, or they'll find some other way to cop, you know, like know your customer and anti-money laundering laws are effectively a way of corralling in Bitcoin into like the conventional banking buffer because the moment that it touches the, you know, the conventional fiat world, then that's it. You're screwed. You're back at square one. Well, but so we're back to Apple versus FBI or PGP versus the world back in the days. And that is that in the United States, at least, the First Amendment and frankly, the Fourth and the Fifth are going to make a lot of these AML regulations untenable in the United States. So, you know, you're right. The Eurozone may try to basically create what's called the travel rule. And so you'll have to tell everybody what you're doing every time you move it on the blockchain. But that software is not going to be written in Europe and it's not going to be available. I guess I guess Europe will ban some software. That'll be kind of an interesting new setup. Yeah, I mean... What you'll probably start seeing is like in the same way that some exchanges just don't run in the U.S., some crypto products just won't want to run in Europe. And, well, that's yep. that. Um, I, I, you know, this is becoming more and more common. I only discovered it recently because I left my VPN on to Spain or whatever. And I went to like a random e-commerce site and there's like a big pop-up saying, sorry, European, just like no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, right. Just, just no. <laughs> the the like, cost fuck. of your regulation is too high. Have a nice day. Right. And I was like, oh, fuck. Oh, by the way, NordVPN is too easy to use. Like, I just left it on. I didn't even notice for days. And so I turned it off and then I was able to use the e-commerce site. Um, so I do know one more caller, James. Maybe we'll take one last question and then we'll, we'll wrap after that. So um, James, welcome to the show. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes. We can. Great. Yeah, um, thanks. Um, I just wanted to say... Um, you know, looking at Chia, you know, obviously it's a new Nakamoto uh, consensus, you know, reinventing things from that perspective. But you know, anyone who's spending any amount of time working at Chia is seeing that they're basically innovating across the entire sphere as it relates to, to blockchain and, and doing, a, a, you know, basically reinventing a number of very, very um, uh, foundational things related to, to blockchain. And I, I guess I just had a question for Gene around, um, you know, just um, maybe some statements from a company philosophy perspective, um, you know, what it is that that really sort of sets Chia apart in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the company approach, uh, because, you know, just seeing how things are being translated in, in the level of innovation is, is really striking. And I, I was just uh, hoping for a little bit of kind of insight behind the veil on, on from a company philosophy perspective, what uh, how that's that's being driven. Sure. So, you know, I think the driving force for Bram and I is that, you know, we both kind of asked the core question of, so what is a blockchain useful for? And we weren't kidding. And when you start digging into that, you know, things like creating markets and creating much more advanced custody, all those things, absolutely real, valuable things to a whole host of you folks. It's not just the art market. It's the bond market. It's the equities market. It's the money market. It's a whole bunch of things. The reason we went with the corporate form is because, well, a lot of people tried to do this the other direction. Let me back up. I am personally not happy that Bitcoin core developers have to beg for money. You know, you've got people who made billions on their Bitcoin bags and the new realm of Bitcoin core developers are out there trying to raise money at like $100 a pop. It's kind of a disgusting situation. And so, you know, and certainly Bitcoin, well, couldn't have figured that out up front because it wasn't clear Bitcoin would work. Now that Bitcoin can work, it lets us know that we can expand on what Bitcoin's doing to build something that really will work. And so being able to use a corporate form to actually pay our developers and to, you know, pay for grants or help other people on the supply side and the band side, as we we're talking about here with Antonio, you know, it really makes it easier to go get the kind of adoption we want to build because, you know, I like to tell people we're not trying to build like the Monero ecosystem. We're trying to build the Linux ecosystem from scratch. And ultimately, what we want to do with the corporate form is actually distribute the coins that the company owns out to the shareholders after everybody's had a chance to become a shareholder. You know, at the end of the rainbow is the like Chia Foundation that keeps the core 200 developers employed because there's a bunch of money and cryptocurrency stacked up that pays a return. And all of the kind of business elements have been long gone. Back to my point about ultimately blockchains are things that are fought against between nation states. And frankly, Bram and I don't really wish to be in the middle of that. That's great. Thanks so much. Thank you. And I promise you did not pay him to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask, um, you know, we'll have to look at the uh, chain analysis to see if there's been any traffic <laughs> between the wallets. <laughs> um, Love the question. 
Cool. And I won't escalate the conversation by asking, you know, how does crypto play into the Ukraine war, for example, which would be a, which would be a, a whole separate thing. Um, or whether it could be used for, you know, by Russia to evade the, the sanctions, which I've um, done that one a few times. You sure you don't want to do it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're, we're, we're way over time. Um, cool. And um, but thank you, Richard and Gene. Um, it's been a it's been a great conversation. Yeah, no, no worries. I've um, it was great. It was a great forcing function to learn. I mean, I already knew about you, of course, but to learn even more, I read all your white papers and stuff. So it's been a it's been a great cool. forcing function. And I think the theoretical conversation about like. Yeah, what do you put at the core of this crypto business? Like proof of what? <laughs> right. I right. think it's, it's kind of interesting and unresolved. And as a total plug, anyone, including Gene, who wants to keep on talking about this Web3 attribution idea, uh, who wants to build like another possibly proof of usable work protocol, I would love to talk to you about it. My DMs are open because it's something I, uh, I definitely am thinking about more and more seriously um, going forward. But um, I'll, I'll drop that self-plug and mention... The last thing I often mention is who's on next week, and next week is, oh, it's the Praxis Society people. So um, if you're not familiar with it, Praxis is this interesting sort of charter state type company that's doing a bunch of stuff, uh, very much in the, in the crypto vein, actually. Um, and so they'll be on next week. But in any case, uh, thanks again, Gene and Richard. Um, and um, Chia's website, by the way, um, has great docs. So anyone who wants to learn more, by all means... Um, Go to Chia and uh, yeah, interested to hear about NFT one. And uh, you were kind of hinting, you were hinting that interesting, you know, product launches were coming. So I'd be interested to see yes. what the, the next thing is that you're launching. Cool. The, the official thing is, as I say, it's soon. But yeah, you know, look, Antonio, <laughs> thanks for having us on, and uh, a real pleasure, man. Cool, great. No, thanks, Richard. Thanks, Gene, and thanks everyone. And as always, it'll go out, and you'll be able to download this where all fine podcasts are sold very soon. Thanks again. See cool. everybody. Bye. Thanks.